Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we attempt to look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. An important update since our last meeting, uh, Nancy Pelosi did in fact step down from leadership, so Brendan does not have to eat his shoes. Yeah, I was not sweating at all. Uh, I'm Brendan Buck, one of your other hosts. Uh, We hope everybody had a relaxing Thanksgiving holiday. We're excited to be back. I am excited that Nancy Pelosi is gone. I did tweet like a year ago that if she was still in leadership in 2023, I would eat my shoe. I do not have to. That is great news. Um, There's a lot of other important news that we're going to be covering. The lame duck is here. Uh, Who had railroad workers bill on their bingo card for the lame duck? Uh, Today, we're going to talk all about the lame duck. Uh, catch up on Kevin McCarthy's quest to get 218 votes to be the next speaker. And we have a very exciting guest, uh, former Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, Annalise's former boss. Uh, He'll be with us a little later. But first, Brendan, I know we've talked a lot on this program about the lame duck priorities, and it is a lengthy to-do list with only about three weeks scheduled to get all of this done. Um, We know the most pressing issue, of course, is funding for the government, which expires on December 16th. Uh, And I think right now there's a lot of skepticism that they'll actually be able to get this done by the deadline. So we could be looking at a short-term CR. We could be looking at working well into Christmas. Uh, and, and also, if they can't come together to uh, on this omnibus this year, like, we could see an alternative, which is a one-year CR, so they would just keep spending levels flat all through next year. And that's something that was discussed at the, uh, with the congressional leaders at the White House just this week. So I think they were all saying, all the leaders are saying that they want to avoid this, but I think it's a really, you know, it's something that we just can't dismiss as a possibility. So, I mean, Brendan, if, if we see this extension, keeping members here into, until well into December, into Christmas, as we've seen, you know, unfortunately, many years before, um, how do you think that changes things for Republicans when they're already facing these really challenging leadership hurdles? Yeah, I still think that the incentives to get a deal on an omnibus are, are there. Um, but they're way behind schedule. And, uh, you know, there are some basic steps to to wrap up one of these things. And the very first one of them being a top line number that they all agree to that all of the rest of the money, you know, is divided up amongst and they don't even have that yet. So like, that's your very first step. And we don't have it and the in government funding um, runs out in less than three weeks. So it's pretty clear we're, we're going to have a at least a short term CR. Um, you know, look, we're now people talking about December 23rd, um, would not surprise me if it goes past Christmas. Um, now again, the, everybody at the white house today said, we don't want to have a year long CR. We want to get an omnibus done where they actually write a detailed bill laying out different funding priorities and probably increase spending. And, and you have two retiring senators who head the appropriations committee who probably for their legacy want to get it done. So that's probably the, the, the odds on favorite, um, for an outcome that they will somehow pull this off. I think all of the CR 
conversation is is really interested in terms of like a long term CR. Um, I think that would be you know one of our big themes, of course, is like will Kevin McCarthy be the next speaker? I think a year long CR would be an absolute gift to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, two things about this, uh, you know, one he would have he would be able to avoid having an omnibus which will make conservatives very cranky pass right before the speaker vote. And two, it would just clear the decks where he doesn't have to worry about funding the government until late next year, and he can avoid some of the the angst that's going to come. The problem, I think, for Kevin McCarthy right now is if they are stuck in D.C. working on this up to Christmas, maybe even up to January, it creates a lot of opportunity for people who want to scheme and do make trouble for him. It gives them a lot of opportunity to be together and make trouble. And that's when things tend to, when, when members are sitting around idle is when a lot of trouble happens. And so I, I think it's in his best interest to get them out of here um, as, as quickly as possible. Um, and if they're somehow past an omnibus near Christmas, either right before or right after, that's also tough for him. Um, because again, it will make conservatives really grumpy if they have to pass an omnibus. And you would like to have a little time and space for that to clear, to let people kind of vent and get over it before the next vote. Literally the next vote after an omni will probably be for Speaker of the House. So if you're Kevin McCarthy, CR is great. An omnibus, much less great. And an omnibus right before you have to pass, uh, right, right before you have to get 218 votes to be speaker on the floor um, creates a really tough environment. So um, I, I think that they'll still get an omni done, but I think he, while he will never be able to be for it, um, he would probably love for them to get their, get their act together quickly and not be sitting around with folks plotting against him close into January. Yeah, and I think over the break, we saw McCarthy trying to kind of shore up that Republican flank that, uh, you know, he's he's so concerned about right now and will be concerned about going into this January vote. I mean, the way I, I look at this, he, he took two really, um, you know, big actions to try and, and kind of um, solidify that Republican base. One, first and foremost, being his push to reopen the NDAA, uh, holding it hostage essentially until 2023. This is the National Defense Authorization Act, the authorization legislation for military funding. Um, I think, you know, this this is, in my view, more of a kind of a messaging push. I think this it's really likely that this one's going to get across the finish line. It's gotten across the finish line for the last 60 years. Because this is one of the things that even though Democrats are in charge, not every Democrat votes for it. So they need some Republicans to support it. That's right. Yes, it's it's typically a bipartisan supported piece of legislation. And and I would be really surprised if this is something that doesn't get across the finish line before January. Um, But, you know, it's certainly not surprising that, you know, we had a lot of members of the House Freedom Caucus calling for some of these, quote unquote, woke provisions and the NDAA to be stripped. So it's definitely not a surprise that McCarthy is coming out and, you know, trying to kind of corral that base of the Republican Party and and get on board with that. Um, And then the other big thing that he did is called for the impeachment of Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, which, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Andy Biggs actually introduced a piece of legislation to impeach him as well um, earlier in the year. And of course, 
uh, Rep Biggs as someone challenging McCarthy for the speakership currently. Probably stopped short of calling for impeachment, right? He said, we're going to, you, you need to resign or we'll impeach you. So he did give him an out. That's right. Yeah, that's right, Brendan. Um, so but I conversely, like, do think that that's something that will continue to be kind of hammered um, throughout next year. I think McCarthy did say that they're going to hold some field hearings at the border, um, try to bring some Republicans and Democrats, you know, down to the border to try and kind of get a little bit more press and get a little bit more like firsthand views of what's going on down there. And I think that will all be roped into, you know, what's going on with the administration's leadership and, and what changes they're going to continue to push for. Yeah, I, I think the the moment for Kevin McCarthy, uh, his effort to get 218 is starting to get real. You know, they had the conference vote before the break. And of course, he won that. And that was a little bit um, all, all for show. Uh, and now things are, are getting serious. The Freedom Caucus, of course, has said, they have up to 20 members who are going to vote against him on the floor. I, I doubt it's that high. And like, let's be real. These folks have to say they have enough votes to block him or else this whole game doesn't work, right? You can't get anything if you don't like assert at least that you have enough votes to block him. Whether they do or not, um, I don't know. But they, they certainly seem to have enough public people um, who who are uh, on record as opposing him. How hard they're going to oppose him, I don't know. But Kevin is now... Um, making some more moves, like you said, um, those two things. The other thing he's doing is is reviving uh, the effort to or the pledge to strip Democrats from their committees. And this is something that a lot of House Republicans feel like is due for retribution. They feel like uh, Democrats overreached when they took Marjorie Taylor Greene off of her committees. Um, you know, I... I a lot of people made a lot of mistakes in this process um, that led up to that moment, certainly not Marjorie Taylor Greene herself included. Um, but this is something I was really worried about, was this is a really slippery slope. And I think this is something that is going to extend beyond committee assignments, but really you know, through oversight and all kinds of ways, you're going to hear Republicans say, Democrats broke norms and therefore there are no more rules. And... Uh, some of the people that they are talking about removing committee assignments from, um, Ilhan Omar, um, obviously Schiff, some of these folks, you know, some of this is just ultimately going to come down to ideological and political differences that they have with them. Um, they'll say it's not, but I just, I hate for the institution. I, I hated that they couldn't find a way Republicans to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene herself because it, it's just a really, um, you know, it's just going to build upon itself if we keep going um, at each other and removing people from committees. So that is another thing, of course, that he raised. So let's just kind of get to what we currently think McCarthy's strategy is. And I don't know that it's it's changed a lot, but there's a lot of reporting. And I've talked to a lot of folks that are pretty convinced McCarthy is going to the floor no matter what. Even if there are five, ten folks who say they're against him, he's going to go to the floor. And the strategy really, I think, is just even if he loses the vote on the floor, I guess that would be the first time in 100 years, uh, but hoping that the conference loses patience with the Freedom Caucus quicker than they lose patience with him and just lean on them, lean on those guys and say, what do you want now? You beat me. Cool. We're going to have another vote. What do you want? Um, and I think that's going to be um, a tough spot for the Freedom Caucus guys. I, I, I've, I, I've gone back and forth in my levels of confidence in, in Kevin getting there. Um, 
the number of people who are opposing him is growing, but I'm also feeling a little more confident that he'll do it. One other thing that McCarthy said this week that I just want to touch on, um, bringing it back to this omnibus discussion, is that you know a lot of the House Republicans are, uh, McCarthy included, saying that they're not going to support this blank check for Ukraine. Uh, and I think that's another you know big piece of uh, lame duck legislation uh, that, that folks are really wanting to get done before the end of the year. I think Republicans understand and that you know, there's going to be a challenge on from both Democrats and Republicans and getting a, a coalition together to support uh, Ukraine funding in the, in particular in the new year. So I think they're looking at this last, you know, lame duck session as their kind of their only shot. And I know it's a priority for Biden, who also just mentioned this week that between Ukraine funding and COVID funding, those are kind of his two lame duck priorities. So of those two, you know, I really don't see, you know, I'd be curious to get your take on this, but I really don't see COVID funding as kind of having any chance to get done in the lame duck. Yeah, not not in a bipartisan way, certainly not. Um, and I think talking about Ukraine aid um, is a great uh, topic for, for our, our guest coming up, former uh, Senator Cory Gardner, who has a lot of uh, national security experience. I do think there remains a consensus that we need to support Ukraine. But I think, again, this is Kevin McCarthy giving voice to people in his conference who uh, are much more isolationists and him just waving the flag on on their behalf. So you, you kind of have to look at whatever Kevin McCarthy says, including on Ukraine, as all revolving around um, his his effort to get to 218 votes. But we'll we'll talk about that um, with with the senator. The other the big thing this week is the Republican rules meeting. Um, before the break, they talked uh, internally, voted on rules changes. Uh, for the House and the conference. Um, they only did about half, I guess, of their work, and they're, they're meeting again this week. And some really important uh, debates are going to take place, I think, for operations of the House, but again, for Kevin McCarthy. This is another opportunity for him to give some things to members uh, of the conference or of the Freedom Caucus. Um, they're talking about all kinds of things related to the steering committee, um, the rules committee, uh, a lot of those things all designed to sort of weaken the speaker. I'm sure the motion to vacate. Uh, will come back up in these conversations. One thing to really keep an eye on just for the, the future functioning of, of the House is there's going to be another debate on the earmark ban. Republicans um, had banned earmarks for a number of years, and when Democrats came back, they reinstated the ability to earmark funds on appropriations bills. Uh, I was there when earmarks first got banned. It was a big conservative priority. Um, but it's been interesting. I've been in a lot of conference meetings over the years where Republicans the most conservative ones out there started to sort of go soft on that and say, you know what, even though that may have led to um, some unseemly projects in the past, it is a congressional prerogative to be able to spend money. I want to bring earmarks back. I, I, I think this will be defeated, I, the, the effort to bring back earmarks. I think there are so many, um, or the effort to ban earmarks. I think earmarks will remain in place um, just because so many conservatives have now kind of gotten tired of uh, the uh, administration deciding where money goes. So just an important thing to keep an eye on. We will monitor that situation. But I think now is a good time to welcome our guest, Corey Gardner, who was a key member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, he's going to have, of course, a unique perspective on what Congress should be doing here. So let's turn to that conversation. 
And we're excited now to welcome uh, our guest for today's episode, former Senator of Colorado, Corey Gardner. Uh, Annalise likes to always refer to him as a senator, but for me, he is always a house guy. Uh, senator Gardner, welcome to Control. Pleased to have you on. <laughs> hey, thank you. And I am 100% completely housebroken. <laughs> nice. Well, welcome, Senator Gardner. Uh, how was your Thanksgiving? I heard you got uh, stuck with some of the cooking. Tell us about what happened. <laughs> you know, okay. Here's the deal. I was in charge of the wine, which I probably am not qualified for to begin with, but I thought, okay, I can handle this. I'm sure somebody at the liquor store can tell me this is good wine. Uh, and so that was my plan. And then like the Friday before Thanksgiving, one kid goes down with flu and the strep and it was downhill from there. And then by Thanksgiving day, I realized this is not going to be good. My wife tested positive for the flu. Our other kid is sore throat and, you know, headache. And I, oh my gosh. So yeah, we had a, we, we went from having, we were just bringing the wine going over to her brother and sister's place uh, to, we had a full on Thanksgiving at our house. It was like a harken back to the, the COVID Thanksgiving of 2020. It was quite the experience. More wine for you, I guess. Yeah, more wine. And you know what? I got to, I got to admit the bathtub method to thaw a turkey because you didn't know you were cooking a turkey actually works. <laughs> uh, well, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to um, after after 2020, Senator Gardner. Yeah, besides thawing out turkeys and bathtubs, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to stay involved uh, in, in making sure that we have a, a country that's based on uh, our foundational principles of freedom, liberty, and opportunity. And uh, so I, I've stayed in the game politically, uh, have been working with the National Victory Action Fund to, I think we've put over 20 or so million dollars into races across the country, uh, House and Senate, uh, hard dollars into their campaign. Uh, exciting work to see that. We had some great successes and we're building off of that uh, so that we can do even more in years to come. And, and then, you know, I'm also working with a couple of businesses, doing some uh, work with a rocket company headquartered out of Denver and working with an investment firm out of New York. So a, a, a law firm in Washington, D.C., Michael Best, Michael Best Strategies. So I'm having a lot of fun. We're getting a lot of work done. And uh, I, I, more, most importantly, uh, my kids actually, I think they know my name. They remember me and I'm going to a lot more uh, events that I didn't even know they had. Uh, and shame on me because the last 15 years are so busy that a lot of things I missed, I'm able to catch up on now. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you're having living living a good life. Um, I, so, as I mentioned, you know, you to me uh, are the class of 2010 house guy. That you know, that's I think where we I first encountered you, um, and it feels a bit like deja vu here. We, you know, we've we've got a rowdy uh, conservative House Republican takeover. Um, I'm wondering, you know, as a as a member of that 2010 class. Um, what kind of contrast do you see? How familiar does it feel? Um, what what does it look like to you? Well, you know, this is a, a great example of having your foot on the gas pedal and your foot on the brake at the same exact time. And what do I mean by that? In 2010, we got elected. We came in with this mandate from voters, uh, but we had a Democratic Senate. And so we had the foot on the gas, ready to go, ready to uh, do incredible things. And then Harry Reid voted on like, you know, three things in four years. Uh, and uh, we ended up hitting a pretty significant Senate wall, uh, so to speak, uh, when we were in the majority in the House. And so it frustrated the base. It frustrated the members. And we were cantankerous. We were rowdy. We were ready. Uh, and I think 
you know, there's some cautionary notes to learn uh, about that experience that uh, if you promise too much and you don't succeed because you've got Chuck Schrumer uh, throttling back the work in the Senate to make sure the House doesn't succeed, uh, you know, that can set uh, set up some losses of expectations. And I think that's what we have to make sure uh, we, we don't. And I also think that, you know, the way we took over the, the chamber and the House and how uh, Speaker Boehner, then Speaker Boehner, wanted to manage the House uh, creates some cautionary notes as well for uh, for Speaker McCarthy uh, when he takes the reins. So I do think that they've done, in my opinion, a little better job of expectation setting, at least on the legislative front. Do you do you share that view? I agree completely with you on that. Yes. Doesn't feel like we're promising to repeal Obamacare this time around in a way we, we probably knew we couldn't do back then. You know, it's almost there, there were times where I thought that we had promised to, you know, repeal the law of gravity. Uh, certain things we just could not do, but yet we were hell bent on on saying that we could and getting them done. And unfortunately, uh, we could pass uh, whatever law we wanted to, and the Senate uh, wouldn't respond and reciprocate. And even if they did, of course, uh, we had President Obama in the Oval Office uh, the entire time that we were in the majority. With so so, there were several different backstops that prevented us, similar to now, where you had you'll have a Republican House, a Democrat Senate, a Democrat White House, uh, and you know I think. They're setting the right tone so far. They're setting the right direction and, you know, getting under the hood of this government that hasn't had an honest look by the media, that hasn't had an honest look by Congress to see what's going on and who's doing what and why we're failing at the border, why we're, why we're failing to deal with inflation is going to be incredibly important. But I, so learn from those lessons of 2010. Uh, don't replicate them in 2022, 2023 when they take over. Uh, and I think you can set yourself up for a victory in the White House in uh, the, the 2024 cycle. And real quick, you said um, lessons to be learned from how Boehner managed the House. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, John Boehner, very much an institutionalist, and I think we all know that. Somebody who wanted to return the power away from leadership and back to the committees and back to the chairman of the committees. So instead of having legislation that was written uh, behind the proverbial closed doors uh, in Washington, D.C., and with John Boehner, there were indeed smoke-filled back rooms. Uh, but he wanted to make sure the committees were doing their jobs. Well, the challenge with that is the Republican majority hadn't really been used to governing in terms of leading the institution, taking the reins. And so while it was learning how to govern, while it was learning how to manage the House, while it was learning how to, to start the committees and lead the committees, uh, it's trying to get legislation started and through. And it took uh, several months to actually get some of those very first pieces of legislation across uh, the, the the committee floor uh, across the committee and then across the house floor and that frustrated members that frustrated voters and certainly the media was able to glom onto it because uh, the democrat minority very effectively used it uh, in terms of uh, you know where are all these bills and all these jobs bills that you promised and so they started to use that against us and then uh, you, you started to see kind of a reversal a re reversion back to all right, leadership is going to have to start getting involved in some of these things, starting to draft some of these bills and then having committee just do what they want. So that was the cautionary note. I mean, we need to be smart. We need to restore the power of the institution to the members of the House, but we also need to be ready to govern. And I, again, commend Kevin McCarthy for, you know, they've been taking, you know, they've been taking a lot of leadership courses in terms of how they're going to manage the House that we simply didn't do back in 2010. And I think they are going to be ready on day one. 
One of the most uh, interesting stories from that 2010 timeframe, Snare Gardner, is which I think speaks a little bit to the challenges of you know managing a majority and with some of these like you know smoke filled back rooms uh, involves Brendan's former boss, Speaker Boehner, uh, and pizza. And Brendan, I'm sure you remember this, but I I don't know if you've heard this <laughs> story from uh, Snare Gardner's perspective. I have no idea. Yeah, Brendan, I, I don't know how how much. Uh how much pain or anguish the pizza party started, but uh, it's one of my, my favorite uh, memories of serving in the house. We were uh, off, we were at this little group of friends that we would try to get with regularly. And uh, oftentimes we would go to the house floor, uh, special orders or other times and uh, give some speeches to the American people. Uh, and then we would have dinner afterwards. Well, Speaker Bader wanted to share with our group the the board of education room in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a room where I believe it was Sam Rayburn, former speaker of the house would take wayward members of the house to be educated uh, on the ways of the house. Uh, and so, so speaker Boehner wanted to share with us that room. And so we ordered some pizza and it just so happened to be that this pizza party was taking place at the exact same time. And I, I don't remember if it was the fiscal cliff, a, B, or C, or Plan B, or Plan C, whatever it was, uh, it was during a, a pretty precarious time in negotiations uh, on some budget issues, spending bills, and otherwise. Uh, and it was also at a time when th there was some, you know, apparently some public uh, interest in the relationship between Speaker Boehner and Majority Leader uh, Eric Cantor. Uh, and so, we, you know, we were just in this room. We didn't think anything about it. We're in the Board of Education room. Somebody gets up to go to the bathroom. I think it might have been, I, I can't remember if it was, if it was, uh, you know, Martha Roby, who it was, comes back in and basically says, you're not going to believe what's happening out there. There's like a hundred reporters outside of the door. And we're, we're like, what the heck is going on? So sure enough, one by one, we get up and we go, look, and there are hundreds of reporters, or at least what appeared to us to be hundreds of reporters stalking us out because they thought that we were cutting a deal with Speaker Boehner on whatever cliff that we were on. We started getting phone calls from other members of leadership because the press was calling them saying, hey, Speaker Boehner's cutting you out of the loop on this. And oh my gosh, it, it, it became this big fiasco. Uh, and it, I remember one of the press reports afterwards simply said, it's hard to believe they were just having pizza. When in fact, that's exactly what we were doing. That's amazing. I vaguely remember that. Think of the power you could have had if you asserted it. The deal you were cutting. Well, I, I still think if you look up exactly right, you Google like freshman pizza party. I think you'll still find that story. It's a yeah. I guess we should have cut some deals. It could have been a, you know a much more fun evening. I guess. That's terrific. Yeah, I, I know that room well. Um, lots of plotting does go on there. I can assure you, though, the only plotting was if we were going to have pepperoni pizza or pepperoni and mushroom pizza. <laughs> well, I, I know we do want to get into a little bit more policy and some foreign policy stuff. I do want to just quickly get your take on Kevin McCarthy. Um, I know you were uh, friendly with him, I'm sure. Um, and just sort of uh, how you see this going for him, the likelihood of him getting there to 218 votes and, and kind of what you think he needs to do to, to shore that up. You know, I think if, if there's there's many lessons to be learned at the 2022 election, but one of them is something that I think Colorado taught me early on, and that's the the yuckiness factor that voters don't like about government. They don't want to pick up the, the the newspaper, they don't want to turn on the television and just see dysfunction and and dysfunction 
on on the same side of the the, the team, right? Uh, the sort of intro fight that that it looks like sometimes we do very very well at the expense of actually fighting for the American people instead fighting amongst ourselves uh, within the Republican conference. And so uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we need to make sure that that we don't expose the American people to that factor, which is going to sour them on Republican leadership uh, immediately. Why do that? Why risk that? Why go into that cycle, which has such great promise for the House and the 2024 election, such great promise for, uh, you know, what could have been a generational majority could still be a generational majority in the Senate. And of course, taking back the White House, why sour the American people on that yuckiness? Uh, let's, Kevin McCarthy got them there. Kevin McCarthy put them in the position to win. Uh, and I think he will be a great leader. That's exactly what they need to do. And so uh, get over it, get over yourself uh, and uh, vote for a leader. Do the American people a favor, get to work, roll up your sleeves and stop trying to divide immediately on day one, actually get to work. Yeah, I've been saying that all of this only really helps Democrats. Just, all you're really doing is weakening the speaker to the advantage of, of, of the minority. And I don't know if that's really serving you well in the long run. You know, and I remember all the time when we were negotiating those moments in 2011, you were right there when Speaker Boehner would come in and say, if I don't have everyone together, then I have to go to Speaker, I have to go to Nancy Pelosi, Minority Leader Pelosi, uh, and get votes. And that means I have to give her uh, something. Uh, and it weakens the hand of the leader, but it's not just weakening the hand of the leader, it's actually giving them victories that they wouldn't otherwise have. And uh, many times those are victories that we wouldn't support. So the people who may be causing these problems are actually handing victories uh, to Nancy Pelosi or, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, whoever is going to be in the leadership role in the, in the Democratic conference that otherwise wouldn't occur. It will be on their hands. The victory that they get will be for Hakeem Jeffries against their own conference. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I want to shift us a little bit to talk more about foreign policy and in particular what's going on in China. Um, with your role as a former uh, member on this on the Foreign Relations Committee, you know, chairman of the subcommittee on East Asia, um, you know, we're seeing some pretty uncharacteristic protests in China right now uh, in response to COVID restrictions. And I know McCarthy recently announced that there was going to be a House Select Committee on China to kind of examine a lot of the the you know policies that have been going on and a little bit of, of the COVID restrictions and all of that. I'm curious what your take on these protests uh, in China are and you know maybe talk a little bit about what you think Congress or maybe the administration should be doing in response. Well, look, first of all, the administration should embrace uh, the protests and what they're standing for. Uh, and uh, look, uh, the fact that you have to hold up a blank piece of paper and people can be jailed for holding up a blank piece of paper because they are afraid of the symbol, the meaning behind that uh, is incredibly powerful. And the White House Congress ought to be uh, behind them 100 percent as they push back against an oppressive regime that has violated human rights, not only in Xinjiang, but also the rights of people who've been locked into apartment buildings. Sometimes uh, we heard welded shut, doors welded shut, so people couldn't leave uh, their homes during the middle of COVID. Uh, we, and so, look, I remember the first time I went to, to China, and I remember the first time I went and visited with American business leaders in China, traveled to Hong Kong and met with human rights leaders. It was 2015, and there was a unifying message. At least at that point, it seemed like they were all on the same page. The American leaders, the leaders of at that time of free Hong Kong, 
uh, were saying, hey, look, President Xi is new. Uh, we think he's going to be a reformer. Let's give him a chance. Uh, maybe there's some room here for a new direction for China. Uh, it wasn't long that after that that we saw uh, some of the new uh, laws uh, put in place that were creating back doors to people's bank accounts, requiring Communist Party members on uh, certain boards of businesses uh, and uh, other attacks on Hong Kong, which basically have now succeeded because of inaction by the world. Uh, and uh, I, I do think the the sort of hope or optimism or perhaps the wishful thinking about uh, President Xi uh, seven years ago now, uh, completely misguided and misplaced. And here we are now uh, in a world that has uh, grown perilously close to direct conflict between two superpowers uh, because the world is afraid to stand up to uh, to China and its violations of human rights, violations of trade policy, and its refusal to play by the same standards and rules of the road as the rest of the world. Uh, and it's led by an authoritarian regime that could care less about the uh, the, the welfare of the people but cares more about the welfare of the party. And so that's why the White House needs to squarely get behind uh, the people of China and push back against the Communist Party. Shifting gears just a little bit, uh, but in the foreign policy spaces, Ukraine aid, I know we've talked a lot on this program about lame duck priorities, and that is a huge lame duck priority and getting a little bit more Ukraine funding, um, you know, out before the end of the year, because I think a lot of people recognize that with the new House Republicans, it's going to be a much you know, a, a big uphill climb to get any more funding out the door for Ukraine. I don't know, Senator Garner, what you're hearing on whether this is a possibility or if in your your perspective, you think it's likely uh, to, to if you think Congress is going to be able to get something done within, I think we've got about, what, three weeks, maybe, maybe four weeks uh, <laughs> left in the legislative calendar yeah. to get something done. Well, look, I think uh, Mitch McConnell has said it uh, many, many times that legislative time is the coin of the realm. And that's exactly what uh, Chuck Schumer is going to be dealing with over the next uh, a few weeks as we approach uh, January 1st, the end of Congress, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> once again, I think you're hearing silver bells in the halls of Congress as people prepare to celebrate at least the beginning of perhaps even Christmas Eve uh, in, in uh, the chambers. Uh, look, we have to realize that Vladimir Putin uh, isn't going to just end with Ukraine if he gets his way. I mean, if he does, then I'll become a Las Vegas Raiders fan, but it's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, look, if, if, if Vladimir Putin succeeds in destroying and breaking Ukraine, uh, he is going to continue uh, to, to create a festering uh, problem and challenge in Europe, uh, undermining uh, Europe, undermining our values, undermining the U.S., uh, through uh, this uh, work. Uh, that's dangerous for the world. This, his, this interest is all about Vladimir Putin creating instability because he knows uh, uh, instability in the globe hurts the United States, uh, empowers and emboldens China, uh, and gives him, through Iran, China, uh, and other bad actors, uh, a leg up against the, the, the freedoms and openness of the West. And so I do think we have to get this uh, aid delivered. I do think we have to get a significant package through. It's not to say we can't look under the hood and see what's going on, make sure it's being spent right. But uh, it's the right thing to do to continue uh, to fund uh, those values that we as a country stand for. And that's making sure that uh, people like Vladimir Putin don't have their way around the world, destroying uh, countries and nations that want nothing more than their own independence. 
I, I tend to think that they there you know there'll still be a general consensus that we need to provide Ukraine funding, but there's no question that Republicans are much more isolationist uh, even than you know ten years ago. Um, do you think that's a a permanent trend? Is that what the the GOP kind of stands for increasingly, or do you think that's just a bit of a blip? You know, I, I do think that, you know, obviously we've we've gone back and forth on that, that spectrum of isolationist to, to more interventionist. Um, I, I think that if you look at some of the work, I believe it's uh, Henry Now, uh, Professor Now, I believe, has done some great work on, uh, I think it's called conservative internationalism, where we are not hesitant to involve ourselves where our interests are at stake. Uh, and we solve the problem, but we don't create lingering problems. I think there's some great uh, opportunities to look at Professor Now's uh, work uh, on on that. Uh, I, I want to make sure that we we should, and, and I agree, we should look at the spending. We should make sure it's being spent right. We should make sure that the aid is being delivered where uh, where it was promised to go. Uh, but I, I don't think that it would be good for Republicans. I don't think it would be good for the world, quite frankly, if we simply completely go all over the spectrum, all the way over to the other side of the spectrum and, and just become the isolationist uh, party. Uh, I think bad things happen around the globe when we do that. Bad things happen around the globe when we decide that we're going to uh, just become interventional uh, nation builders. Uh, and so there's got to be this uh, middle ground uh, of looking out for U.S. interests, looking out for the values of our country through human rights uh, and democracy and freedoms around the globe, but doing it smart, doing it quick, uh, and then uh, making sure that we can get back to uh, our country's business. So uh, I think uh, going too far one way or the other is always bad as it is uh, on most issues. I want to get you out of here, uh, but obviously we just had a, a big election and it went not exactly how I think a lot of people expected it to go, not quite as well for Republicans. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, you were obviously, as you said, involved uh, in supporting some candidates. Uh, from your perspective, what lessons, if any, should Republicans be be taking from the results of this election? I don't know if this is any kind of original thought. A lot of it's been said uh, already. But look, I, I don't know that the 2020 election necessarily ended. Uh, I, I think that you look at the 2022 election, not in isolation, but as a continuation of the 2020 election. And, uh, you know, a 2022 would have been like a 2018, would have been uh, like a 2014 a midterm election. But it didn't function that way because it wasn't an isolated election. This was, in essence, a presidential election because uh, we still have a, a president uh, uh, that is very much involved in Republican politics. We still have uh, a lot of the uh, sort of lingering concerns that Republicans uh, have, have, have glommed on to. Uh, you know, that, that they continue to uh, allow to fester. And look, I mean, the election's over. Uh, President Biden won. Let's let's figure out a way to defeat him in 2024. Uh, those states that did the best uh, were Republican leaders that were unequivocal about their values and their opinions. Uh, and I think that's where we have to get to. Uh, let's 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 <laughs> let's move on. Let's move forward. And let's make sure that we are actually championing the, the concerns of the American people and not just continuing a fight that we lost a couple of years back. Amen. Yeah. 
Well, Senator Garner, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, we hope listeners, you can join us next week as we continue to follow this transition to new control in Congress. Thank you, Senator. Hey, thanks for having me. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.